Would you turn to um, Mark, Mark 14, and we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, and we find ourselves today at Mark 14 verse 22. We'll be reading from verses 22 to 25. Mark 14, 22, 25, and the Word of God reads, While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup, And given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So here we come to the Last Supper, to the First Communion. Here we come to the decommissioning of the most sacred Jewish festival and the establishment of the most sacred Christian ordinance. When Jesus transformed the Passover feast to what we call the Lord's table, this point in history was such a pivotal moment, a game changer in the economy of the redemptive history. It was the triggering of the termination of the old covenant altogether because it couldn't save anybody. And the inauguration, the birth, if you like, of the new covenant that is able to save everybody. And so it was a transition from the old to the new. Um, That Passover feast... (coughs) was the oldest Jewish festival. It was older than the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Leviticus system. It was older than so many um, ceremonial, the washing of the hands in the Old Testament. And for many other reasons, the Passover feast had become the dearest in the heart of the Jewish nation. This Thursday night in the Passion Week, it was the very last Passover that was recognized by God. It had his stamp of approval on it. But yet at the end of that same night, it was as though Jesus picked up this festival and he stuck on it a divine red tape. And the label on that red tape is expired, terminated, void, and then he buried it six feet under. Any Passover celebrated after this one is no longer recognized by God. Now, if if the crown of all festivals and all rituals, if the most sacred feast has been annulled by Jesus, then what does that say about the rest of the Jewish feasts and rituals? The whole entire Levitical system with their priests and the ceremonial laws and the customs, 
all of the above have been made obsolete. And after the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very next day, any more feast that the religious people have celebrated and ate a lamb it has no more religious spiritual significance than if you would take your family and go to Macca's and have a Big Mac meal. No more value in a redemptive history. No divine blessing is attached to any observance anymore. How come? Because all rituals and feasts, all the ceremonial laws, the washing of the hands, the burnt offerings and everything else that constituted the Old Testament were no more than visual aid that pointed to Jesus Christ. By observing any or all those laws put together, it couldn't save anyone. They were there for a reason. And that reason is so that man could realize how holy God is and that God demands perfect obedience. And in the light of the fact that man cannot satisfy God's demands, all these feasts, all those rituals were meant to be a big fat red arrow that pointed to the coming of the Messiah. Because it's only that coming of the Messiah, this Messiah, by his perfect obedience, he was going to be the one who would satisfy God's demands for his people. Colossians 2.16 and 17, they say this, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Verse 17, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And during this moment, um, this moment, this event, Jesus was going to replace the old with the new. What is passing away, Jesus is going to replace it with what he will set up forever. We're going to keep it simple, the outline. We'll look at observation of the text, the interpretation of the text, the meaning of the text, and then number three, the application of the text. Right? So it's just simple hermeneutics, observation, interpretation, and finally application. But just first thing first, we just want to give you a background so we can connect the previous event that we looked at with this current event. If you recall, all the 12 disciples along with Jesus were reclining at the table. And as they were eating a Passover meal, first thing, how they began, it's just as their custom was, that they would um, drink red wine diluted, mixed with water. And the second thing, and after they drink that wine, um, the host of the meal, which is happened to be Jesus at this point, he would explain the meaning of the Passover as per Exodus. And after he explains the meaning, they would sing a psalm and multiple psalms, perhaps depending on the day, um, from verses from Psalm 113 to 115. And then they drink a second cup. There will be four cups in total. 
So they would drink the second cup, again, red wine mixed with water. And after drinking that cup, there would be a bowl uh, mixed with uh, grounded fruits and nuts. Um, and they mix it with bitter herbs and they eat it together. Again, everything has a symbol. It, it symbolizes something. And this symbolized um, the bitter painful life of bondage that their forefathers experienced were when they were back in Egypt. And at that point, if you recall, Jesus um, interrupted the feast and he opened his heart to his disciples. The scripture said that he was grieved. And he said to them, not only will he die, but he is going to be, be betrayed by one of them. All right, now you're up to date. And now we come to verse 22, to the first point in outline, observation. Let's just observe the text. And so first, verse 22 says, while they were eating, he took bread. Now, in again, in that wide space between verse 21 and 22, many things happen. But the one thing that we need to pay attention to um, that happened is that all hell broke loose on Judas' head. Because the worst and the most devastating thing that could ever happen to any man on this side of eternity happened to Judas. John 13, 27 fills in his gap and it tells us that Satan then entered Judas. So Satan not just any demon, but Satan possessed Judas. In verse 30, it tells us that he went out immediately and it was night. So Judas now got out of that house where Jesus was and now all that is left in this upper room were Jesus and the other 11 true, genuine disciples. So after Judas left, Jesus being a host, he washed his hands again as their custom was and he would have brought out the roasted lamb as the centerpiece. This is now the main meal which most likely Judas would have missed out on and while the meal is completely now laid out before the disciples. Verse 22 says, while they were eating. That would have been at the time of eating the roasted lamb. While they were eating, it doesn't tell us how far in digging into this lamb and eating it. Most likely, I would believe at the, at the very end, it would make sense that that would be a good time to interrupt the, the meal, but no one would ever know for sure. I'm just guessing here. And Jesus took some bread, it says. So it would have been some of the leftover of the unleavened bread that they had when they ate the lamb and, uh, and, uh, and the fruit and the nuts. And it says, after a blessing, he broke it. I want to say something very important here. When he broke it, this breaking of the bread has absolutely no significant meaning. Nothing at all. Other than the fact that he had to break it so that he can pass it around. Right? Uh, we know from the scripture, John 19, 36, and also in the Psalms, it tells us that not a bone of him shall be broken. So Jesus' bones were all attached. So this does not resemble a breaking of Jesus' body if you like. 
Anyway, Jesus picked up a, a large, if you recall, unleavened bread. It would have been a large, uh, crispy, flat piece of bread that he would have picked up. And it says he blessed it. Luke is more specific and he says he gave thanks. Jesus always uh, did that. Always before he ate, he gave thanks to the Father. But this time it would have been very different. Because since this was the Passover feast, the custom at this feast, according to Mishnah, Mishnah is the Jewish historical tradition, it tells us that the blessing of the bread before passing it around, it would have meant that Jesus prayed a very specific prayer. Jesus would have prayed, as, as it, and I quote, Praised be thou, O Lord, sovereign of the world, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. And everyone would have responded and said, Amen. Exactly right. There was total silence would have been at that time. All they could hear um, is just the cracking of the bread. And then as Jesus broke that bread and distributed it from hand to hand around the table, and as all now the 11 disciples, each one's got his own piece of bread on his hand, in his hand, Jesus broke the silence and he said the following radical words that they would have never heard before. He said, take it. This is my body. Matthew explicitly says, take, eat, this is my body. And then in verse 23, it continues on, it says, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, the word given thanks is Eucharistos in, in Greek, which where we get the word Eucharist from, which is another uh, term, you know, instead of, um, you know, the Lord's table and communion. And he says, he gave it to them. So Jesus picked up the third cup now. That's the third cup, again, full of red wine mixed with water. And the third cup is called the cup of blessing. And Paul referred to it later in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. He says, it's not the cup of blessing which we bless. And then later on, he says in verse 21, the cup of the Lord. So Jesus now would have picked up that cup, the third cup. And again, according to the Jewish tradition uh, that was passed on from year to year, from generation to generation, Jesus would have prayed this special prayer as part of thanksgiving for the cup of blessing. And he would have prayed and, and uh, it would be really good to pay attention to this prayer. May the all-merciful one make us worthy of the days of the Messiah and of the life of the world to come. He, that's the Messiah, brings salvation of his king. He shows covenant faithfulness to his anointed David, to his anointed, to David and his seed forever. He makes peace in his heavenly places. May he secure peace for us and for all Israel. And this is the kind of prayer that they would have prayed every year at the, at the drinking of the third cup. And all the disciples would have responded and they would have said, 
Amen. Then in silence. It was so silent, it was so deafening. And after Jesus passed the cup around, and it says there, they all drank from it. And once again, Jesus broke that silence by such radical, forthright words. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What a shocking statement. Can you imagine if you were there with the other 11 disciples and you heard these words coming from Jesus' mouth? You just don't know which one is harder to swallow. This is my body. This is my blood or even the very food itself. What does all of these mean? Well, so far, this is the observation of the text. Now we come to the interpretation of the text, the meaning of the text. But I want to start with what these words do not mean. Let's start with that. Jesus was not saying that this flat, crispy bread was literally his body. He wasn't saying, Andrew, here, take this. This is my stomach. Bartholomew, here is my left eye. Or or, uh, John or Simon, here is my ankle. Jesus was not saying that. Jesus was not advocating the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. In in the 12th century, um, the Catholic Church came up with that belief that they said the whole substance of the bread and wine transformed to the whole substance of Jesus' body and blood. Jesus, this is not what Jesus meant when he said what he said. No. If you know anything of church history, you know that by the 16th century, the Protestants um shed their blood. There was a bloodbath in that century because they refuted this doctrine. Now, I think it's good to have some time and explain the reasons why this could not be literally Jesus' body and and blood. Number one, and I'll give you four reasons. Number one, it wasn't the first time Jesus used figurative language to refer to himself. Jesus said at one stage, I am the door. It doesn't mean that Jesus is MDF or a pine, big, rectangle piece of wood who, that had hinges on the side and a knob in the middle. Jesus was not a door. It's just a figurative language. And Jesus said about himself that he was a vine and, and the light of the world, that he's the bread of life, that anyone that comes to him will not hunger. Anyone that believes in him will never thirst. All of these are figurative language. And the disciples at that time, after spending three years with the Lord, they knew, they understood exactly, they were familiar with Jesus' language and his genre that he used. That's the first reason. The second reason is, yes, Jesus as God is omnipresent. As a divine being in his spirit, he does exist everywhere. But when we speak about the flesh, when we talk about his body, 
We are talking about His humanity, not His divinity. And Jesus in His humanity, Jesus exists as a human in one place at one given time, at any given time. Excuse me, at any given time. So, for example, right now, Jesus exists where? Uh, With his glorified body in heaven. In heaven. And 2,000 years ago, when he instituted the communion, he was in his body as he was talking to his disciples. His eyes were in his eye sockets, in his skull, in his head. The unleavened bread could not be transformed to Jesus' literal eyes. Or else, Jesus, while he's been speaking to the disciples, he would have been speaking to them with no eyes and no teeth and no mouth. Since now, the bread has become his body, which is obviously absurd. The third one is a little bit more technical, but I think it's good. In the original Greek um, language, the, the word bread is in masculine. But when he said, this, this is my body, it was neuter. Meaning this thing, this broken thing which represents my body. Number four, the final reason why that this could not be Jesus' literal um, body and, and, and blood is because if Jesus did transform the bread into his body, literally, and then commanded his disciples to eat it, they would have been guilty of being cannibals. And, and, and Jesus would have been charged guilty of stumbling his disciples to eat his bread, to eat his body and drink his blood, since the Old Testament made it very clear that it is evil to eat human flesh. So no, when Jesus said, this is This bread is my body and this wine is my blood. He was speaking figuratively, not literally. That's not what he meant. So what did he mean? We start with the bread. Well, this bread symbolizes his body. Originally, the unleavened bread, what did it symbolize? It symbolized the forsaking of the evil culture of Egypt leaving behind all pagan influence as the Jews were delivered from the Egyptian oppression and now they are traveling to the promised land. They were to forsake the pagan lifestyle so that they would consecrate themselves to God. But in today's passage, Jesus was kind of saying to his disciples, scrap this off. This is no longer the meaning to the unleavened bread when it comes to the Lord's table. From now on, this bread symbolizes my body. Well, what does it mean, Jesus, more specifically, that it symbolizes your body? In the parallel account of Luke, Luke 22:19, he gives us more information. He says, this body given for you, meaning offered for you. Soon it will be sacrificed for your salvation. 
And then he continues on and Luke says, do this in remembrance of me. And so the Lord's table is a memorial service of Jesus' sacrificial death. The bread in the Lord's table refers to Jesus' life that he lived in the flesh. His body, Jesus' body was necessary so he could live a sinless life on our behalf. Meaning with his body, he lived a perfect obedient life that we failed to live. It was his body that was bruised, spat upon, scourged, stripped naked. With his body, he bore our sins. And it was his body that he trampled over death, triumphed over Satan, triumphed over sin, and ascended from the grave to the highest of heaven. And it is with his body now he is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Now, not only that, but verse 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink. You drink with your body. Drink of the fruit of the vine. That's, that's the wine. Another way of saying wine. Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he's referring to the millennial kingdom. In other words, Jesus with his glorified body, he will come again, establish the physical kingdom, his kingdom, and we will enjoy beholding his body, celebrating his victory by eating and drinking with him while he is in his glorified body. And obviously with one another forever and ever. That's the bread. That's the meaning of the bread. Now the meaning of the blood. And Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. Which covenant? Luke 22 verse 20 says, the new covenant. The new covenant is to be established and it came at a cost. It came at a high price. The precious, pure blood of Jesus, the Son of God. Now, why did he shed his blood? Matthew adds, for the forgiveness of sins. And continuing on in that verse, and Jesus says, which is poured out. The blood that was gushed out of Jesus was poured out, shed Great volumes of blood came out of Jesus, and we know that. The crown of thorns is blood that spilled um, out of his head, the spear that was pierced on his side, the nails on his limbs, hands and feet, the scourging, the tearing of his flesh, the tearing of his organs. All of these led to the pouring out of Jesus' blood. So it was a a red, warm, bloody scene. Blood was dripping out of the wooden cross when he was hung on it. And God wanted the death of Jesus on our behalf to be so graphical, so visual. Why? Because the scripture tells us that without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. 
So for a sacrifice to be a sacrifice, not only does it have to die, but it has to shed blood. And so the pouring out of Jesus' blood was so vivid and it is as though that God had his um, ear piercing, megaphone, ear splitting, and thunder aloud through time and history. And he cried out, this is my son, Jesus Christ, through the shedding of his blood. There is now forgiveness of sin. Now, please note the power of of this blood. Please note. Who did Jesus pour out his blood for? What does it say? For many. Well, how many? Every sinner. Since the start of history who believed in God, had the entirety of his sins plotted out. Every sinner, Abraham the liar, Jacob the deceiver, Moses the murderer, David the adulterer, Rahab the prostitute, every Old Testament believer was saved by Jesus' atoning blood. Not by the works of the law, not by the rituals and the festivals, but by the works of the Jesus Christ on the cross alone. And even now, looking back in time, all sinners in this age, the age of the new covenant, in this dispensation of time, who believed in Jesus, who put the trust in Jesus Christ, every sinner, Paul the murderer, Simon the zealot, which if you recall, the terrorist, Matthew the tax collector, every vile and wicked sinner. And how many of them? Revelation 7, 9 tells us a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne before the land. Millions upon millions of people. All of these sinners, like you and I, right? Jesus poured out his blood and they all were forgiven. All their past present and future sins have been forgiven because their sins were washed by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus says, not only that, not only it's for the forgiveness of sins, but the establishment of the new covenant, the new covenant, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the change of our hearts. The throwing away of our stony heart and and giving us uh, this wonderful flesh heart. He made us heirs with Christ. And now we die. Those who are in Christ, those who put their trust in Jesus Christ are dead. They, They die and their lives are hidden in Christ. How beautiful. How wonderful.
This is the meaning of the text, and we come to the application now. The application. And the first thing in the application is I want to ask you, are we grateful when we read this text? And let us search our hearts. Are we really grateful? Are we thankful for what the Lord has done for us, for the new covenant? Are we enjoying this? How grateful are we? How thankful, how much are we appreciating the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf? This is not time for condemnation. I actually want to help you to know how to be grateful. I want to help you to know how when you read this passage, how to really be thankful from the bottom of your heart for what the Lord has done. Let me tell you. Remember, remember what you were like before you were saved. And never forget it. We Christians who were wretched, miserable, depraved sinners, we who loved our sins and hated the way of God and rebelled against Him, And every breath we took, we shook our fist before his face. Remember that. We who deserve nothing but hell because of our wicked works and our hearts were shackled in chains, enslaved to our sins, bearing our guilt and our shame on our shoulders. Brothers, None of us in and of ourselves, when we were not saved, we were not in any way better than Herod who wanted to murder Jesus. We were not better than Judas who betrayed him or the Romans that crucified him. No, our hearts were so wicked that had it not been for the restraining hand of God that kept a lid on our evil and stopped us in our track, in our pursuit for sin, we would have made Judas look like so morally good that he would have qualified for the Man of the Year's Award in comparison to how wicked we could have become. Brothers, may we never belittle the depravity of man. May none of us sugarcoat how evil, how much evil that ran deep in our souls when we were unregenerate. How we were thirsty for sin, enemies of God, monsters of iniquity, suppressors of truth, lovers of selves, sons of the devil, haters of God. We were by nature children of wrath. Our spiritual wallet was empty. Our holy portfolio was totally bankrupt. Would to God that we would know the enormity of our sin. Why? Because not until we are convinced, not until we never ever forget 
And always remember that we were helpless sinners under God's judgment and deserving God's wrath that we will ever be able to appreciate this text that is before us. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So it had to take the unblemished blood of Christ to be poured out so that sinners such as us would be forgiven. How thankful, how grateful are we? If Jesus, the sinless Savior, gave up his life for us who are wretched sinners, how can we not be so grateful to give him our lives? If for no reason whatsoever that he was under any obligation at all, yet he died for us, is it too little to live for him? If he loved us so much that he sacrificed his soul, his body, Brothers and sisters, we must be so thankful by sacrificing our body and soul to Him. How do we do that? How do we do that? How do we practically, and in the context of the Lord's table, let's keep that same spirit at hand. How do we live for Him? I want to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and verse 7, chapter 10 and verse 17. And this is the second application, second and final application. How do we practically, if you say that I'm so grateful for what the Lord has done, if you say, yes, I appreciate that what the Lord has done for me and I want to live for Him, what does it look like? I want to tell you what it looks like before we read the verse. How do we live for Christ? By paying any price necessary to be united with his body. Right? The church. To be eager to maintain that unity of the faith. What is that? What does that have anything to do with the Lord's table? Everything. Let's, let's read verse 17, right? So 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, Since there is one bread, it's the Lord's table, it's the bread that we eat, we who are many are what? One body. Why are we one body? Continue on, it says, for we all partake of the one bread. It cannot be any clearer than that. We are one body because we partake one bread. Do you know what this means? When we come together as a church and we have the Lord's Supper as we will, Lord willing, next week. It is never ever meant to be a collection of private worshippers. Jesus 
me and myself kind of people and we just happen to occupy the same building and each one would have the Lord's bread and say, I live for you, Jesus, in my own shell. No. Brothers, sisters, when a church gets together, and we eat the bread and drink the wine, even with all of our passion and enthusiasm for what the Lord has done for us. This is not like going to a soccer match and you have all these people barracking for the same team and carrying on their singular passion because they want the team to win, but they have absolutely nothing to do with the people next to them, and they are all together celebrating their goal individually. No, this is not what the text says. Now, I ask you to turn to this passage. I want to read to you verse 16 and 17, and let's have a look at what the Lord's Supper is meant to to convey. Verse 16, it says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless as sharing in the blood of Christ? Question mark. Yes, it is. Is not the bread which we break as sharing in the body of Christ? Answer. Yes, it is. So, what's your point, Paul? And then Paul goes for the jugular and he says, since there is one bread, we who are many, implying many people eating that same bread, are one body. Why? For we all partake of the one bread. What does that mean? As we eat the bread and drink the blood, recognizing whom he is that we are worshiping, we ought to have in our hearts that we are declaring that the very life of Christ that is running through our veins, running through our veins together from one to another, we are declaring that we are one. We are desiring that. We are willing to be that. For Jesus' sake. And as we're doing that, he knits us together. And the very nutrition, the multivitamins and minerals, even Christ himself is fed in and through us, joining our ligaments and marrows and bones and, and organs together. And this becomes our prayer. God, do this in us. Do this in us. And then God will continue to stitch my heart to your hearts and my life to your lives. And likewise with one another such that the manyness of, of us individually become one in Christ. And you can read that. For yourself in Ephesians 4, in Romans, in, in many different places in the scripture. So much so that we are willing that by, by the power of the Holy Spirit and for Jesus' sake that we become one to the point that we have one singular passion. 
one mind, one determination. And in so doing, we lay down our lives for one another. And one passion, one determination that we all have together is that in our togetherness, we live out this gospel. That the Lord has enabled us to live. And through our oneness together, we are so determined that the gospel is proclaimed. And so, this is how we remember what Christ has done for us. Remember I said there's really no significant value in the breaking of the bread? Absolutely, when it comes to Christ himself. But the one significant value in the breaking of the bread and giving each one peace is that when they eat it together, they are declaring that they are one. And that's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 10. You want to be grateful for what the Lord has done? Remember what you were like before he saved you. Unworthy sinner. And live for him. You want to know how he wants you to live for him? You lay down your lives for one another. You serve the body of Christ. You love them. You desire to be one with them. And what unites us together is that we want together to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we can never be grateful enough. There's always room for us to grow. Father, would you put in our hearts to be so determined to be grateful for what you have done. How wretched, how vile, how wicked we were. And in your sight, we were miserable sinners. But yet, you sent your son and he died and he rose again in order to grant us forgiveness and give us eternal life. Would you help us, Lord, to truly live for you your way, not our way? Would you, Lord, Continue to do the work that only you can do in our hearts to knit us together, to give us that one mind, one passion, and that is to live for you together and to help one another to do exactly that so that together we proclaim the gospel that you want us to proclaim. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.